African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin Mushatam, on this hour as we look at the events that took place at the G7 as the G7 nations made commitments to sharing 1 billion vaccines doses by next year. However, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa told the meeting held in the uh, Britain in the UK that he believes a TRIPS waiver is still the best way to get the world vaccinated against COVID-19. The G7 nations have agreed to step up action also on climate change to help poor countries cut emissions. Let's just listen to the position that was made by uh, South African President Sir Ramaphosa at this meeting. What we have been able to get from, uh, say, the European countries is their agreement that the uh, World Trade Organization process must ensue and there must be negotiations that are based on the text. And we'd like to believe that having encountered negativity and opposition right at the beginning, the position has softened, it has become much more reasonable. Well, that is South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who was uh, the sole representative for Africa at the G7 meeting. Well, to help us on this subject matter, we have Elizabeth Sidiropoulos, who is the Chief Executive of South Africa's Institute of International Affairs, also known as SIA. We also have David Ansara, who is a researcher at the Institute of Race Relations. We also have Victor Homoeswana, who is a commentator and author of Africa is Open for Business. Let me start with you, Elizabeth because I know we have limited time with you. Let's just look at the backdrop and not assume that everyone understands what the G7 summit is all about. Can you really help us understand its its context and, and, and its insignificance? Well, the, the, the G7, of course, was established uh, as an informal sort of fire, fireside uh, group uh, in the wake of the oil crisis in the 1970s. Um, it's gone through its ups and downs. It became the G8 um, when Russia was joined. But it was really the most systemically important countries, economically important countries, which was the case pretty much until the end of the previous century. Um, and I think by the time of the financial crisis in 2009, uh, we recognized that this was not possible for them to, uh, to be pulling a lot of the strings. Uh, they were the ones who obviously had a lot of the power in the in the international financial institutions, and it's been the G20 was then elevated to a summit. During the Trump years, it went through a bit of a slump as well, mm. um, with um, with the you know Trump's aversion to multilateralism or at least minilateralism. Mm. And I think the summit this time round was an attempt to resuscitate it and to build a greater cohesion among these uh, Western countries, particularly around values. And I think that came out very strongly in many of the, commun- on the various communiques, uh, although perhaps some of the more specific commitments were a little less specific. Mm. Staying with you, Elizabeth, it is very significant that you highlight these uh, geopolitical historical elements, especially opposed the Trump era. And it seems like they were trying to resuscitate 
those relationships. Uh, how do you think things went in that light? Um, I think, you know, I think there was a, re, a recommitment, um, uh, which I think all of the members felt strongly about in terms of the values that uh, define uh, Western democracies and Western economies. Um, I think there was probably less uh, there was there was less uh, convergence, for example, on the extent to which uh, they might make a strong statement uh, and and take uh, strong initiatives uh, around countering China's economic and more broadly geopolitical interests. President Biden, for example, wanted a the announcement of a significant uh, step up in infrastructure, uh, green. Belt and Road as a response to, to China's Belt and Road. That didn't quite happen. They did highlight infrastructure and needing to put that at the center of a lot of the engagements with Africa and other parts of the world. Um, but, uh, but clearly, I think European states uh, were less willing to sort of really be very strong on, uh, on China, unlike President Biden. But they were also coalescing around some of the in big international concerns, uh, which you saw in the communique around um, what is happening uh, in Belarus and in Ukraine. And there was a statement, of course, about Xinjiang and, and Hong Kong. So from that perspective, some coalescing, but uh, not always uh, specific on the details. Mm. What also was a theme for this year seems like the issue of vaccination and COVID-19, the G7 leaders had made a commitment to actually uh, donate uh, uh, 870 million vaccine doses for low and low middle income countries over the next year. Um, Definitely, it's no um, real surprise that that would be a central theme. Yes, absolutely. Um, But of course, it falls far short uh, of what is actually required. Uh, the director, the African director of the African CDC made the point a couple of days ago that what we require really is one billion doses immediately and two billion by the end of the year. And we're not actually seeing that. Uh, we're, we're seeing a little less than, uh, than one billion. Um, a lot of it is going to, some of it is going to go through COVAX. Some of it has already been committed before the G7 summit. Mm. So it's also unclear what, what is new, what is simply old uh, commitments made earlier. For example, a few weeks ago, months ago, the EU had committed 1 million, 100 million, uh, the UK 100 million as well, and of course, President Biden 500 million, which was going to really be over a whole, uh, partly this year and part, and part of mm. it in the first half of next year. And this is a problem because, of course, the pandemic continues. Uh, we have variants that are proliferating, uh, and I think that puts a great stress on, on global health security. Mm. Before I go to Victor and, and David, um, uh, Elizabeth, let me just pose this question around the, the issue of the TRIPS waiver uh, because uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa was very much insistent on um, a waiver being the way, best way to actually deal with uh, uh, the COVID-19 vaccination process. What's your take on the politicization of, of that particular issue? Of course, the, the issue here is that many of the countries uh, that are sitting around the table in the G7 
have, have the big pharmaceutical companies that are actually rolling out the vaccine. There are clear economic interests there. Part of the concern raised has been the extent to which if you go through with such a waiver, uh, you, in a, in a sense, also take away the incentive for many of these companies to invest in R&D. The fact of the matter is, of course, though, that on much of this research, there's been support from the public sector. So that's a, a serious consideration in the context of uh, intellectual property rights. And the second point which they argue is the fact that, well, you know, this, even if we were to negotiate this waiver pretty quickly, mm. um, we wouldn't really be able to reach economies of scale in terms of setting up manufacturing plants to, to do this in other parts of, of the world. That might be a case, but I think the, the issue here, and I know the president and our proposal is for an interim, a, a temporary waiver, is that it does, this pandemic has forced us to reconsider what we consider public, global public goods. Mm. And we really need to think about you know, what I've said before about sometimes we end up socializing the cost and privatizing the profit. And I think we're at this crossroads now where we really need to think about it. Uh, this is a really global health security challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the weakest link is those who are not, we're as strong as our weakest link. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's the issue here. And, and I hope that the discussions with the WTO really create an opportunity for reflection, not only on the temporary waiver, but also on how we rethink some of the intellectual property rights in the context of the big pandemics and climate change challenges around technology that we'll be facing in, in, the, in the next few years. Well, Elizabeth, we'll leave it there. I know you have to attend to a meeting, so let me give you time to also settle uh, settle your space for that. But thank you for giving us you. your contribution. Thank you very much, Benjamin. Thank you. That's Elizabeth Sideropoulos, who's a chief executive of the South Africa Institute of International Affairs. Let me move to Victor Homeswan, waiting patiently on the line as we were trying to broaden the discussion. And I think Elizabeth was a good starting engine to this uh, uh, topic. Victor, your thoughts in terms of uh, this trying to resuscitate this uh, multilateral uh, political spectrum through the G7 meetings? Morning, Benjamin. Morning to David. It's, a, it's one of disappointment because President Ramaphosa was there, but it's not surprising. G7 has always been an alliance of the rich countries. Mm. It has never been about anybody else. They were founded to counter the effects of OPEC, which was a cartel that has made the con given the control of oil prices to, to the oil producing and exporting countries. And you know, well, that has not been resolved, but G7 has managed to protect the interests of the rich. And here's what I mean. They are communicating, and I'm looking at it verbatim here. Hmm. The, the second point after saying we, the leaders of the group of seven countries, is our agreement is to have a G7 agenda for global action to one, end the pandemic and prepare for the future by driving an intensified international effort starting immediately to vaccinate the world by getting as many safe vaccines as many, to as many people as possible, as fast as possible. Mm. Now, that sounds like an alliance that is aware of the emergency facing it, right? Sure. But what did President Ramaphosa ask for? He asked for the waiver of the intellectual property rights. 
So you are at an accident scene, Benjamin. Think about it. Mm. You know that that man over there or that woman over there has a formula to manufacture the medication that can save lives on the accident scene. This is an emergency never before seen in the world. Somebody is standing there, the rich countries are standing there with a formula to beat them. They have vaccines that can be used to contain this, not only to save lives, but to save livelihoods. Because with the lockdown, livelihoods are being threatened. Families are not dying of COVID, but more people are dying of hunger because they are losing jobs. You have the formula. You go to Cornwall for three days, you meet and you come out and guess what? You refuse to immediately waive the rights to allow the world to manufacture vaccines. What does that tell you in closing my opening remarks? It tells you that the G7 is protecting the profit interests of the pharmaceutical companies that are cashing in or profiteering out of this crisis that is killing people. So you show me a G7 that is able to do the opposite of that, then maybe I'll believe in them. What is disappointing, though, is that President Ramaphosa, as the representative of Africa, mm. has not gone to China and to Russia yeah. and talked to them about their own vaccine. How about that? Mm. Because if we think we will talk to whoever we need to talk to to solve the problem, China has the vaccine. Russia has the vaccine. We are not talking. We are running to rich countries that are refusing to give us the waiver. And lastly, we have our own indigenous solutions here. And I'm not talking about voodoo snake oil <laughs> solutions. I'm talking about the umsonyana, the, the, the mm. nana, that mm. has been proven to work in treating the symptoms, not curing, mm. but treating the symptoms of COVID, which is what kills people effectively. Mm. This has been ignored, Benjamin, by mm. the South African government. It has refused to deploy research resources to verify whether or not it works until, shame on us, Max Planck Institute in Germany went on to research this. So uh, if you want me to give you an opinion, that will be in brief my uh, take on this G7 summit. One of the most useless meetings that will ever attend is like enjoying that you were at the rich, at the rich man's party and you come back with nothing. Mm. Let's bring in David into the conversation, Victor. Uh, David, are, are you as pessimistic around around this particular issue as uh, Victor is? Is because um, we are seeing a commitment of these uh, uh, vaccines. It's a, it's a starting point. Some would argue. Ben, thanks very much. Yeah, so I think the 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 question around uh, the 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 vaccines sorry i'm just getting a bit of echo here on my side but uh, you know i think the trips waiver is part of a broader criticism that the uh, south african government uh, has had towards international property rights and i think it's very important when looking at the the speed and the mobilization of resources mm. that have gone into developing the the vaccine in record time um, you know, those uh, pharmaceutical companies do need to make returns on their investments. Uh, they uh, have sunk a lot of R&D capital and, uh, and, and human capital into that development. So, uh, you know, I think one of the concerns here is, you know, South Africa has been a long time critic of the international uh, intellectual property rights framework and has uh, quite actively antagonized uh, many of the developed countries in this regard uh, and this goes back all the way to, um, you know, the, the the AIDS pandemic. 
you know, so one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, that this uh, so-called temporary waiver that the government is seeking is actually, uh, you know, might not be that temporary, that it might uh, result in uh, a kind of a broader um, undermining of intellectual property rights, which are essential uh, form of property rights. And we are seeing a broader assault on property rights in South Africa through expropriation without compensation, uh, national health insurance also, uh, you know, laying claim to uh, private pension savings. So I think the message that we're sending to the rest of the world is that, you know, we don't take property rights seriously in South Africa, and that is going to have uh, big ramifications for investor appetite uh, in the country. Mm. Uh, you know, so I think we should be very cautious. Obviously, the the pandemic is urgent. Uh, we do need access to vaccines. Um, but, you know, the government, through the centralization of vaccine procurement, has made it very difficult for South African vaccines. Uh, there have been a number of inefficiencies in terms of that procurement process. And the Department of Health is saying, well, no, we must control that process. Uh, and essentially locking out private uh, entities such as Discovery Health from, mm. from procuring directly. You know, so I would say that, you know, the president's remarks about vaccine apartheid and that uh, the, the rich world is, is hoarding vaccines, I think, is, is misdirected. I think uh, the problem lies at home. Uh, and if you consider that South Africa is lagging uh, behind many countries in terms of vaccine procurement and rollout, we only have about 3% penetration uh, in South Africa. Mm. Uh, but there are, there are other countries, you know, that are also struggling economically that are part of the the so-called global south, if you consider Argentina, mm. their penetration rate is at about 20%. Mm. You know, so I think uh, the South African government is pointing a lot of fingers and, and kind of blaming uh, uh, many of the industrialized Western democracies. But I think, you know, that's probably a, a bit of deflection on behalf of the, on behalf of the president. Mm. You know, probably someone listening to you, David, would say, well, does the, because this is a, a critical moment whereby this is an international emergency. Uh, COVID-19 is should be a priority for anyone. So considering property rights in a mainstream and conventional ma- matter in this emergency is can be overrided just because of um, just how this moment, how serious it is right now. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as Elizabeth noted earlier, you know, this has uh, international ramifications. It's not just a, a kind of a domestic uh, issue. Um, but, you know, if you look at, so for example, who else is pushing for this, uh, this temporary tips waiver? That's India. And India is a leader in uh, generic pharmaceutical production. And, you know, that is, uh, you know, that is uh, their competitive advantage. And so they're pushing for that hard. And so you have to ask as well, well, what is South Africa's longer term? Um, and, you know, like I mentioned, uh, across the board, uh, South Africa has has not been willing to meet the international investor community halfway to provide the guarantees and the assurances that it once did. Uh, in 2012, South Africa cancelled bilateral investment treaties with various European nations, uh, which sent a very uh, clear signal that, you know, our trade and investment framework was based on our terms and not their terms. 
and you know unfortunately the reality of power uh, and uh, and wealth in the global society means that you know if we want to attract capital if we want to attract investment we need to uh, play the game correctly um, with obviously a, a view to securing our national interest um, so you know at the time when those bilateral investment treaties were cancelled the message was well you know these international investors don't have to worry themselves too much because we have a constitutional framework that protects property rights. Now fast forward to 2017 and then up to today, now we have expropriation with our compensation on the agenda. And that section 25 is not just limited to land, it's uh, section 25 refers to all property. Mm. Uh, you know, so I think the, the message we're sending is a very mixed one. And, you know, if the president really wants to roll out the red carpet uh, for foreign investors and for, for international business, then he has to understand the, the framework in which uh, we're operating in terms of the international context. And Victor, I can sense uh, just uh, listening to David that you would want to respond to that. I can't believe I just heard what I heard. I, I can't believe it. I, I pray that I heard wrong because David is saying these companies have invested, they have sunk a lot of R&D capital and they must maximize profit. Now, there's nothing against intellectual property. There's nothing against benefiting from your research and development. But me talking a crisis never before seen here. And, and the real disaster of COVID, Benjamin, is not the health problem. It's the economic catastrophe that it has become. It has shut down economies. It has cancelled efforts of private sector investors, people who have dedicated their skills for years to building businesses. And mm. Those businesses just, they just collapsed. Mm. Not because governments are incompetent, because the disaster that is COVID has forced us to lock down and made it impossible to get anywhere. Now, for David to say, to talk about expropriation of land without compensation. We're talking people dying on this very land. That, that will mean nothing. If we don't find a solution to COVID, there's no value in the land. We'll be dead. Now, I understand that he can say there is a general threat to intellectual property, yes, in certain countries. Nigeria is one when it comes to ICT rights, and that's why the Microsoft and the what are working so hard to make sure they protect that. But David is forgetting that Cyril Ramaphosa as president wasn't representing South Africa. Mm. He was representing Africa, a, a continent over a billion people. And, and he could, let's forget South Africa. I share his concerns about how incompetent sometimes we are mm. and how we are messing up a lot of resources. Just look at the, the, the corruption that we are reporting. So I don't have a problem with that. But he was talking on behalf of Africa. And Africa has a lot more problems. And mm. these G7 countries are the very countries that have taken so much out of the continent. So I really hope I have David wrong. And because if, if that is the thinking that we have, we are not going to solve this problem. And this is not a, a run of the mill crisis. This is like 2008. If we apply ordinary, regular approaches to solving the problem, we are in deep trouble. 
Well, let me take a quick break. Uh, differing views coming from uh, Victor Homeswan, a commentator and author of uh, Africa Open for Business, and also from David Ansara, who's the Chief Operations Officer uh, for the Center for Risk Analysis within the Institute of Race Relations. Very interesting theme and just shows you how problematic this uh, topic of the TRIPS waiver is uh, from an international context. Uh, we're zooming into G7 um, meetings that were taking place uh, just recently in the UK and uh, there's so many other things we can touch on I just want us to move on swiftly from the COVID-19 theme and we'll do that after our break Across the globe, every second there's always a breaking story What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel, and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. You are listening to Channel Africa. Thank you for joining us on our various platform on OpenView, on DSTV Audio Bouquet, and also on our website on www.channelafrica.co.za. Very interesting insights that are coming from our guests around the content, contestation rather uh, of uh, uh, the issue of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine uh, uh, patent waivers. But I want us to quickly move on. But before I do that, let me give David... Uh, a response to what Victor was highlighting as he was critiquing his his views. Yeah, Victor, I think had uh, an interesting point there that he said that Mr. Ramaphosa is representing all of Africa, and you know I would take issue with that. I think you know his role there is to represent the interests of South Africa. His constituents are South Africans, um, and certainly I think he can have a view to the interests of Africa more broadly, but. You know, uh, it reminds me of what the one-time French president, uh, Charles de Gaulle, once said, was that countries have interests, they don't have friends. Uh, So I think it's very important in these discussions when you're looking at all of the the countries represented around the table to ask what are their specific interests. And, you know, unfortunately, the world doesn't owe us anything. We need to compete we need to uh, operate within the rules of the international system to, to gain maximum advantage. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the president's certainly entitled to go there and you know to 
to try and secure vaccines and other advantages for the country. But you must also understand that some of the other messaging that we've uh, been putting out to the international community over the last few years, you know, we regularly side with, uh, in terms of the United Nations Security Council votes, we regularly side with the opponents of the West, uh, with China, with Russia, uh, even the likes of, of North Korea, mm -hmm. etc. So, you know, and that goes, that does not go unnoticed. Uh, the, one of the former uh, ambassadors to the UN of the United, Na of the United States, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, once complained openly about, you know, South Africa, you know, tending to side with opponents of the US. And, you know, South Africa gains a lot of advantages from the US. If you consider the PEPFAR funding for mm. HIV AIDS, uh, you know, that's that's a very generous allocation. I think it's about six billion rand or so. You know, so we are net beneficiaries of our relationship with the West. And, uh, you know, we should be careful about antagonizing them too much. Mm. You know what? I want to move away from this topic, but it seems like I'm going to be stuck here because it is a critical a point that David is making, Victor, if, if it's true that South Africa was attending the G7 on its own agenda, why is South Africa the sole representative for the African continent at a meeting as significant as, as the G7? That's a big question that um, even our, our team was asking during our editorial meetings this morning. Well, may I, may, I, may I respond to that? Yeah, go for it, Victor. Yeah, okay. Let me respect David's view that we should represent our interests. Obviously, he and I obviously come from the opposite sides of the debate on this one, and I, I'm not expecting him to change. I just know that Africa was divided into these 55 countries by colonial interest, not for African interest. So if I know that South Africa has problems that affect the rest of the continent, I want them addressed as a collective, because then the divide and rule that he's advocating is the reason we are where we are in the first place. The powerful nations can come in and cut a deal with South Africa, cut a deal with Lesotho, and they meet us at our weakest, and that's how they're able to get away with what they've been getting away with for decades and centuries. So, but it's okay, let me respect that, because obviously I have to, I have to give him the, the right to hold that view, and, and he's got a reason. And he's, I mean, he's a political sciences guy, so he understands this better than I do. I'm just saying South Africa at the moment cannot afford to be operating on its own, not because President Ramaphosa, he is my president, yes, but at the moment Africa is cut out from the rest of the world when airlines, the U.S., the American, that is the U.K., and whatever, they cut out travel to Africa because they fear there's a high risk. If we cannot prove that we are vaccinated, a critical, a significant percentage of our population, we can't unlock the economy. You understand me, Benjamin? Mm, we mm. can't get people traveling. We can't get our airlines to operate. And I'm saying because of the importance of tourism, both business and leisure tourism mm. to Africa, mm. we cannot afford to remain in lockdown because so many of our countries have not vaccinated. So it doesn't mean I don't have my national interest. I do, but I understand that my economy is tied up. So Johannesburg is as important as it is. Cape Town, Durban, they are important because they are hubs for international travel. So if we don't sort the problems in Nigeria, in, in, in Rwanda, in Rwanda in, we then remain cut out by association and by proximity. So that's the spirit in which I was saying the president has to represent the whole of Africa. It's not because I want him to 
shared his responsibility as the leader of, of, of the country, which mm. he is. Mm. Let me move to the geopolitics because they inform um, the dynamics of why South Africa could have attended and also could inform the new direction that the G7 member states want to take. There was a lot of criticism around China's non-market policies and human rights abuses. There was also a big stance against uh, Russia. These are insights that Elizabeth spoke about earlier on around some of the shifts of relationships within the G7 nations. Uh, David, what's What's your take on on, on that? Well, I think uh, particularly the United States, as Elizabeth mentioned, is is trying to use influence within this club of nations to exert pressure on on China. And I think what's quite interesting in the the kind of post-Trump era in the United States is that anti-Chinese sentiment is still quite strong. Um, And Mr. Biden uh, has been, I think, keenly aware of that. And I think there's a lot to criticize the Chinese about. The Muslim region of Xinjiang in the West, uh, there are growing concerns there around human rights abuses. There's also the infringement on the autonomy of Hong Kong and civil liberties there are being cracked down upon. And it risks uh, undermining the very premise of, of Hong Kong's competitiveness and its offer to the world as a, as a kind of... A, a free gateway uh, to China um, and a place where uh, commerce can and trade can take place uh, in an unfettered way. So the infringements on, on political dissidents there, I think, is of great concern to the United States. Great Britain, by the way, has also joined this, uh, this call and has offered uh, asylum to, uh, to people fleeing from Hong Kong from political persecution. And then there's also the the issue Mm. of the Taiwan Strait, um, Mm. which I think continues to bubble away as a a source of geopolitical tension in the region. And uh, again, you know, Taiwan, uh, you know, the U.S. has always given kind of tacit backing to Taiwan. And it's taken this this, this approach of uh, a kind of diplomatic uh, ambivalence or... Uh, I think uh, strategic ambiguity is the is the technical term, mm-hmm. uh, and actually, uh, under Mr. Trump, uh, you know he was a lot more forthright in his support for Taiwan. But you, you know we're seeing the the Chinese becoming much more aggressive in in the region, uh, in the South China Sea as well, laying territorial claim there to kind of areas contested by the Philippines. It has a very adversarial relationship with many of its neighbors, including Vietnam, which is mm. also a communist country. But, you know, you'd expect there would be a kind of meeting of minds there, but uh, but actually still very hostile going back to the 1970s. And with India as well, and I'm sure uh, India is, is keen to leverage uh, its its relationships with the G7 to try and exert pressure on, on China and its uh, border disputes that it's been having in the Himalayan regions. So I think... Um, so I think that is something of shared concern to all of the G7 member nations. And, uh, you know, Mr. Ramaphosa has obviously been very keen to court that relationship with the Chinese and, and to kind of balance that. And, uh, you know, I think, again, that will not go unnoticed uh, by uh, by the, the United States. I mean, Mr. Ramaphosa in his press briefing said, you know, we take an inclusive approach to uh to foreign policy and to our diplomatic yeah, relations yeah.
but I'm afraid you can't always have your cake and eat it with uh, with, with these kinds of uh, things. You, you mm. kind of need be a bit more clear about where your interests lie and mm. i think the the western nations will uh, will will re require that so i think mm. i think the the issue with china its human rights record its aggression in the region i think is going to be top of mind for all of the g7 countries mm. victor let me give you a final say in terms of what do you make of these um, international dynamics in relation to Africa? It's also interesting to see President uh, uh, of France, uh, Emmanuel Macron, dominating with siding with Africa. That's been a very interesting point in the last few weeks, seeing his dominance and uh, him siding with the continent. Yeah, well, he needs to protect the interests, among other things, of Total in Mozambique, where the violence has threatened a major investment for them. And he is head of La Francophonie, which is like the French Commonwealth. So the French Commonwealth on the one side, the British Commonwealth on the other, both of these countries are struggling, are fighting each other, well, not fighting as in battlefield fighting, but they are contesting to control Africa. They want to dominate Africa because that's where their economic interests lie. Mm -hmm. The same with America and China. Hey, President Trump was more forthright, as David rightly correctly says, because he knew that Samsung phones, smartphones, and what is it, Huawei smartphones were overtaking Apple. Actually, they had overtaken it into number three in the world. When he got to intervene, he started accusing Huawei of spying on the American government. He was playing not a political game, he was playing an economic game. So America will never like you if you are cozy with with China because this is the economy that's going to overtake them in terms of size worldwide as, an, as a GDP. So it's an economic battle. All I'm asking is Africans should not be caught in this kind of proxy battle. I, I was there in the 80s when South Africans were fighting in Angola, and I'm talking about SADF both mm. and people who are part of the MK. Mm. I don't want to be seeing Africans fighting Francophone versus Anglophone like they did at the Pan-African Parliament again mm, because mm. we are not serving African interests. That's all I want. Well, thank you, James, for giving us your time. Definitely uh, different insights coming from both of our guests. Uh, thank you to this diverse view. I always love it when there's this kind of contention of ideas, uh, which is very guaranteed in a complex discussion such as this one. Thank you to Victor Homeswana, our friend here on uh, Channel Africa and African Dialogue. He's a commentator and author of uh, Africa Open for Business. Thanks to David Ansara once again for giving us his insights. He's a chief Chief Operations Officer uh, for the Center for Risk Analysis, uh, which is stationed within the Institute of Race Relations. Thank you both for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Anytime. Thanks, Victor, too. Fantastic. Elion with Elizabeth Sideropoulos, Chief Executive of South Africa Institute of International Affairs, who is setting up the conversation for us. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting.